Do you have a part of your personality that you're not particularly happy with? <laughs> this is one of those times where it'd be dangerous to pass the microphone around, right? One of the character traits that I am least happy with, one of my own personal character traits that I don't like, is that I tend to always want to have the last word in an argument. I really hope that not many of you have ever experienced that from me, and if you have, I apologize now, but please let's go grab coffee or something so I can apologize in person too. It's my family who usually bears the brunt of this. And I know that it's a form of control I know that it's an exclamation point on my own self-righteousness, gives me a sense of power, and it's a sin, and I realize that. After a heated exchange, I usually regret that the last words someone hears as they drive away, as they go to school, as they lay down to go to sleep, that these last words are some sort of sarcastic triumphalism or a cutting remark, or even a told-you-so rebuke. Instead of getting the last word, I wish I was more interested in speaking a good word, a benediction. That's what these verses are here in Hebrews 13. As our preacher concludes his letter, he gives a benediction, a word of God's blessing. So this morning, I want to look at two things with you briefly. First, what is a benediction? And then secondly, how does this benediction conclude this book? What part does it play for this church, this ancient church, and how does it play out for you and me? So first, what is a benediction? A benediction is something that you have probably gotten used to. It may even be one of those church words that you're familiar with, but you don't really know what it is. A benediction is simply God's good final word to his people. It's an ending word. It's a blessing that he pronounces. More than just a polite way to end correspondence, benedictions are what linguists call speech acts. By the very speaking, God is bringing a reality into being. Uh, think about this in other parts of our lives. When a judge pronounces a defendant not guilty, he ushers in a particular reality for that person. When I stand here on usually a Friday or a Saturday or sometimes in a creek bed, and I pronounce that you are husband and wife, that creates a reality that wasn't there before. Now, a man and a woman are actually married. Well, in the same way, John Calvin, the great French reformer, says that a benediction is an efficacious attestation of the grace of God. Efficacious attestation of the grace of God, which is spoken as if it was coming from God's own mouth. And so the idea that we have here is when we hear a benediction, we are hearing God speak a word of His blessing over you and me, and that word of blessing actually conveys the blessing that it speaks of. Now, benedictions 
are all over the New Testament. They, they conclude almost every book in the New Testament, and many of them, you're, you're familiar with this. In fact, the one that we use the most here at Redeemer comes from the Old Testament, from Numbers chapter 6. You often hear me say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The very small, short book, New Testament book of Jude, it's just one chapter, like a th- probably 20% of it is taken up with a benediction. Listen to Jude's majestic benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. That one small little letter and so much of it is taken up with this good final word of blessing from God. Probably my favorite benediction and the one I turn to most often on Sunday mornings as we conclude our worship service comes from the end of 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. I know I often get a lot of amens when I use the one from the end of Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. In our worship services, God gets the first word. He welcomes us into his presence. And God gets the last word too. And that last word is a pledge of God's own power and presence. God promising you that his power and his presence are going with you as you come down from Mount Zion. Remember what we talked about in Hebrews chapter 12. As you come down from Mount Zion, as you go back into your scattered daily lives and callings, you get a word of assurance that God is on your side and that you stand under his blessing rather than under his wrath. That sustaining word of blessing gives you life. It gives you strength in your pilgrimage until we gather again to be fed and nourished. This is why at the end of our services, I invite you to stand and receive the benediction. The benediction is not a prayer. In fact, I would encourage you, if if you're in the habit of doing this, don't bow your heads. Don't close your eyes when I pronounce the benediction. Instead, look up, because it is a word from God to you. If you need to do anything, open your eyes and stretch out your hands, because you're receiving a grace from God through those words. That's what a benediction is. Why does our author use it here in Hebrews chapter 13? Well, remember, we've spent, I think, 16 sermons in Hebrews. Remember what we have stressed in almost every single sermon. This is a congregation in danger. They are in danger of returning to Judaism, uh, persecution, 
doubt, apathy. It's all overwhelming them. They're looking back with some longing and fondness to the priesthood and to the temple and to the sacrifices. And they're wondering if maybe that's better than Jesus. So for nearly an hour, because that's how long it takes to read the book of Hebrews out loud, for nearly an hour, our preacher has been exhorting this congregation to stand firm, to not turn back, instead to press forward, to understand that Jesus is better. And now he's out of time, or maybe he's out of scroll. He has finished the end of the scroll. Or maybe the courier is there waiting to take it to this church. Or maybe the tide is getting ready to go out, so it's got to get on the next boat if it's going to be delivered. Whatever the reason, he has reached the end of this letter, and the final thing that he wants to let them know is that God has not left them on their own. That's what he's conveying to them. God is not done with you. God is not leaving you as orphans. God is still at work among you. In fact, if you wanted to shorten this benediction, you could shorten it to this. May God equip you to do His will. May God equip you to do His will. That's the blessing that our preacher leaves the congregation with. That's the reality that he invokes with these words. You are not on your own. Instead, God Himself is at work in you. God Himself is at work among you. He's equipping you to do His will. It's interesting the way that our preacher describes God. Earlier in chapter 12, we read about God, the judge of all. Here, we read about the God of peace. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember last week when we talked about the difference between the indicatives and the imperatives? The indicatives are those proclamations of reality, those promises, the gospel that comes to us freely by grace. The imperatives are the rules, the laws, the obedience that we in turn offer to God. Do you see how those two things are related even here in this description of God? He is the God of peace who is equipping you to do His will. Friends, we don't do God's will in order to achieve peace with God. The peace has already been achieved in the life and the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the only place in the letter where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is even mentioned. And I think it's interesting that it focuses not on Jesus' life after he was raised from the dead. It's focused instead on the intervention of God. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we being brought to, to face that truth? That it was God who was at work to raise His own Son from the dead. I think it's simply this. Just as God intervened to bring Jesus back from the dead, so He will intervene in your life too. He is at work in you. Working in us 
that which is pleasing in his sight. Friends, listen to this. God may be patient, but God is not passive. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Verse 20, Jesus is described as the great shepherd of the sheep. And I think we should honestly be a a, a little surprised by that description. After all, we have been treated for 12 chapters to a detailed understanding of ancient Judaism. We have been introduced to the temple and to the law and to the priesthood and to the sacrifices. And then we're told about Jesus, the great, and our minds immediately go to high priest, because that's how our preacher has already described him, right? But he turns in these final words, and he says, I've already described Jesus as the high priest. Now you need to know that he is your great shepherd. Why is he a shepherd? Why is that important for us to know? Because God is not done with you. God is still active in your midst. God is at work in you to do his will. God will never leave you or forsake you. The presence of God goes with you as you leave this sanctuary. Every day of your life, you are being led by your shepherd, by Jesus. In verse 21, we're brought face to face again with the blood of the eternal covenant. This is a bloody book. We've had to deal with the blood of the sacrifices, the blood of Christ dying and suffering on the cross. This morning, I want you to focus on that one word of description, the eternal covenant. That's the difference that Jesus makes. The blood of the Mosaic Covenant, the blood of bulls and goats, that merely puts some temporary distance between the sinner and the judgment that was due against his sin. But Christ's blood brings about a permanent state of affairs, an eternal reality that cannot be changed. Let me ask you this morning, do you trust in Jesus for salvation? Do you look to Him for the forgiveness of sins? When we bring new members up, we ask them this question, do you receive and rest on Jesus alone as He is offered to you in the Gospel? If that's your profession of faith, then friends, you will never be more forgiven than you are right now. Can you imagine that? Like, that's hard for me to wrap my head around. How will I never be more forgiven than I am right now? Certainly, there's a different level of forgiveness that I get at the end of the age, right? No, friends. Jesus, by the blood of the eternal covenant, has already pronounced over you the not guilty verdict. It's rushing at you from its end times uttering so that it becomes a word for you today. Remember that. Remember that when you sin. 
Remember that when you fail. Remember that when the devil accuses you of a sin that you just can't seem to shake. Your sin is finally and fully and forever forgiven. It's a done deal. It will never change. You'll never lose it. The God of peace is bringing resurrection power to bear on you to do what? He's bringing His resurrection power to be at work in you so that you will do His will. And here some of you just let out a big internal sigh. Well, this was a really encouraging sermon, Eric, until I got to that point. Because I don't really feel like I'm doing His will. It's such a hard thing to do God's will. About a month ago, a writer by the name of Frederick Beekner died. Some of you know who Frederick Beekner is. He was actually a Presbyterian minister, the other kind of Presbyterian. But anyway, he was a Presbyterian minister, wrote books and articles, work has appeared in major uh, magazines. A few years ago, I, I like him, I like him as an author, and I was reading a few pieces of his, and I ran across a quote, and do you ever do this? where you read something and you either write it down or like you copy and paste it and send it to yourself and then it just lives at the bottom of your inbox for a long time. I ran across this quote years ago and it's been sitting in my inbox ever since. And I think it helps unpack what our preacher is saying here. So listen to this from Frederick Beekner. The final secret, I think, he writes, is this. The words, you shall love the Lord your God, become in the end less a command than a promise. The promise is that yes, on the weary feet of faith and the fragile wings of hope, we will come to love Him as from the first He has loved us. God is at work in you. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Friends, that is less a command than a promise. You and me, these ancient Hebrews, all of us who struggle to obey, all of us who cast a, a wandering eye on the gods of this world, all of us who wonder if maybe there is someone or something that might just be better than Jesus. All of us who turn and return in repentance and whispered prayers for forgiveness. All of us who wonder if God really will forgive us again for the same sins that we have struggled with all our lives. All of us who hope against hope that the gospel is true. We are given this benediction. We are given this blessing. We are given this, as one author puts it, performative utterance. We are given it by God as a promise. I, he says, am working in you what is pleasing in my sight. Friends, that means that you will do God's will. 
And when the time comes, you will hear these words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Well, Father, we long to hear good words. Husbands and wives long to hear them from their partners. Children long to hear them from their parents. Parents long to hear them from their children. We long to know that we are okay. And yet, Father, as fickle as the words of another human are and as desperately as we try to hear them, we sometimes don't pay enough attention to your good word, to the word of blessing that comes to us each and every Sunday, that comes to us throughout your word. Oh, Father, give us ears to hear our good shepherd call to us as those who already belong to him, who can never be plucked out of his hand, to hear this word, this word of promise. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.